Science fiction is a shape-shifting genre, and these days it has shaped itself into a form that's almost universally pessimistic. Dystopias abound, from the climate fiction of underwater totalitarian futures to the derisive critiques of crypto-capitalism. Why the sudden lurch to negativity, particularly as we appear on the precipice of so much improvement to human life and existence? Why can't the future just be more fun and thrilling? That's just one of the many topics I discuss with novelist Elliot Pepper today, who just published his new book, Foundry. Through Foundry, Elliot wanted to explore the geopolitics of semiconductors and its implications for the world. It does that with a plum and a whole lot more, all wrapped up into a thrilling story. We talk a bit about semiconductors, of course, but what I was really interested in grappling with in our conversation was why Elliot keeps writing fiction in a tech industry that always seems to loathe the imagination in lieu of the hard technologies of engineering. Elliot gives multiple compelling answers, and so let's not wait to dive in. Uh, Elliot, I think we were you here for Reaper? Did we do a, an episode on we Reaper? Did. And we did. then we did. I think it was maybe a year and a half ago. Year and a half ago, and then yeah. you were here talking about speculative fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now mm-hmm. you're here. You're, I think you're the first triple returnee on the podcast, Ooh, which is super exciting. Well, it's an honor. Um, and, Do I get like uh, a t-shirt or a prize? <laughs> <laughs> you're already looking for swag. <laughs> yeah. uh, but nonetheless, we have a podcast here. You have an amazing new novel out with Foundry. Um, and you're, you're touching on a, a hot geopolitical topic, which is semiconductors, fabricators, uh, and the ability to kind of control the supply of chips. And uh, we were talking a little bit before the show, and you were talking about how, you know, in your novel writing process, you're up to, I think this is almost, you're almost up to a dozen. Add a dozen, pass a dozen, near a dozen. Foundry is my 11th novel. 11 novels. So you're almost there and then almost to a baker's <laughs> dozen. Uh, but you, you, when you wanted to build this or, or write this story, you, you approached it in a very different way from some of the uh, thrillers you've done in the past. And I'm, I'm curious, what was sort of your uh, creative process as you're getting into this new field? Yeah. So um, Foundry started with a dream. So I actually woke up in the middle of the night and um, I had one of the, a single remnant image in my mind, right? Where you can't remember the dream's larger context. I'm sure listeners have experienced this, right? You don't, you don't remember what was happening. You don't remember why you're there in the dream, but you're left with this one image and sort of the emotional hangover from it. Mm-hmm. And um, I rolled over and I made a note and I went back to sleep. And then the next morning I woke up and I read the note and I was like, wow, that's that's a killer opening line for a novel. And uh, so with Foundry, unlike in my previous books, I actually wrote the whole thing line by line. I just took that one note um, and I, you know, typed it into my computer and then I wrote another sentence and another sentence and another sentence. And those sentences became paragraphs, the paragraphs became chapters, and then like eventually the book grew from there. And it was a very unusual process for me because usually I have more of a plan, right? I know, I sort of know where I'm going with a story. And with this one, it really felt more like I was a reader. I was discovering the plot alongside the reader. And one thing that it really made me think about that I I sort of, you know, like that, that certainly applies for me as a writer, but I think would also apply to people almost making anything, right? Like whether you're making 
<laughs> whether you're a writer, writing stories, whether you're making software, whether you're uh, working on the frontiers of science, just, you know, a lot of there are parallels between human creative process, uh, like across fields. And for me, one thing that was really interesting about this is that in previous books, I actually think we may have spoken about this when we did when we uh, did a podcast about Reaper. Um, but in previous books where I've had a plan, um, inevitably there's some kind of creative crisis that happens in the writing of the book. And right. you know, uh, Ed, Ed Catmull at, at Pixar called said that like every movie Pixar ever made, there was a catastrophe. <laughs> right and and not um, just at the box office yeah 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 no like in the production of the film and that th what they learned at pixar was initially early on when there was a catastrophe they tried to afterwards they did a postmortem right they said hey there was this catastrophe how do we prevent this from happening in the next movie and then a new catastrophe would happen in the next movie, right? <laughs> so like no matter how much they tried to plan around, like avoid catastrophe, a catastrophe would happen. And so they realized that rather than trying to sort of um, de-risk the production of a film from catastrophes, that instead they needed to create a, a creative team who was good at responding to catastrophes, right? So, um, and for me, I sort of went through, you know, as an individual, I sort of had a, a, a similar experience writing Foundry where on previous books where I had a plan and then that plan exploded on contact with reality. It, I would think, oh my God, do I have to trash this manuscript, right? Like, is this is this book just not going to work? Is it broken? And I've gone, you know, on, on with certain books that, you know, I'd be almost in like a crisis with the project for months at a time, trying to, you know, figure out different paths that might work and thinking that I'd need to separate it into multiple books or just throw out the whole thing and start something fresh and new. And what was interesting with Foundry was effectively I was in a single extended creative crisis because I didn't have a plan at all. So it actually felt like every chapter or every scene I was writing, I was in that position where I, I had no idea what was going to happen. And it felt like everything was sort of on the line in a way. And the irony is I just sort of got used to it. It was like acclimatization where suddenly I felt like, oh, okay, well, I like th this is fine. Like I I'm going to just play in this playground of the unknown despite not having a plan. And that actually led the story to places I didn't expect. And I think that it's certainly going to inform how I approach future projects. That's amazing. So you, you had a dream, you wrote down the opening lines, you're going line by line, paragraph, pages, chapters. Um, when did you figure out that it was going to be about chips? When, was that the mm. dream was about chips? Because um, I've, I've never had a semiconductor dream. I have had a dream <laughs> of being stuck at Target at the checkout counter in which I kept trying to use a Walmart card and they wouldn't accept it. And I was very confused why my Walmart card wasn't working at a Target. And in dreamland, you're just sort of like, why? But, but I want to pay. Like, why won't you let me pay? But uh, I'm curious because the focus on semiconductors and fabs and chips um, how did you end up over there? Uh, was that from the dream itself or did you just sort of stumble upon that? No. So one of the sort of joys of writing the book line by line was that I was able to weave in live anything that fascinated me. 
it was almost like you're a jazz musician riffing. And the minute that you have an idea, you can incorporate it into the next session, right? Or into the, the next series of chords even. So for me, the way that I reached the semiconductor angle, like the, so Foundry is a spy thriller about semiconductor manufacturing and how sort of the chips that power our phones and our computers are so central to 21st century geopolitics and the power games that governments are playing with each other. Um, and uh, and so what, what got me fascinated by chips was I actually just learned how they were made. So like, it, like listeners are probably listening to us on their phone, maybe a few on their laptops, but probably your phone. The way the chip in your phone was actually fabricated, like one step in a long process, uses a machine made by a Dutch company called ASML that's an EUV lithography machine. When engineers are making chips, like since the invention of the transistor, they've been trying to pack more and more transistors onto a single chip. We've gotten very good at it, right? So like Moore's law is about how good we, how much faster and cheaper chips have gotten so, so quickly in the last, what, 60 years, 70 years. We've gotten so good at it that now it's just like totally ridiculous what you have to do to pack more, <laughs> more circuits onto a chip. And the way that it works today is that the size of the circuit on the chip that powers the phone you are listening to my voice on right now, the actual circuit drawn on that chip is smaller than the wavelength of any visible light on Earth totally nuts, right? Like, like if you imagine that you were drawing something, you know, you could use like a thick Sharpie highlighter, then you use a narrower, <laughs> right. narrower pencil, right? Like we're talking small, like the tip of your pencil needs to be smaller than any visible light on earth. And when semiconductor engineers sort of reached this threshold, because they were like, what is the narrowest pencil we can use to draw circuits on a chip? And the answer was light. And then you reach the boundaries of light itself. The thing that they did, they invented a new kind of material, an alloy of tin. And you take the, the way your ch phone's chip was made is there is a machine the size of a room. In that room, there is a vacuum chamber. Now you take the tiniest droplet of this special molten tin. You drop it into the vacuum chamber. You hit that droplet with a laser. The laser flattens the droplet into a pancake. You hit it with a more powerful laser, which vaporizes the pancake. And in a vacuum, that release of energy emits a wave, a special kind of light that has such a short wavelength that can't even exist in our atmosphere. It only exists in outer space in nature. Then you take mirrors and you bounce that light around and you pass it through a special tool that gives it a pattern. And then you bounce that light around some more to shrink it and shrink it and shrink it and shrink it. And then finally, that little tiny piece of light hits your piece of silicon. And that's what actually draws the circuit onto the chip. And in order to do this, you have to do what I just described perfectly, without any mistakes, 50,000 times a second. What it takes to, to power the phone you're using right now is the most sophisticated science and engineering project humanity has ever 
embarked on. Like it makes like the Manhattan Project or like the Apollo program look silly or, or just like child's play <laughs> in comparison. And so the, when I was learning about this, I was like, this is just bonkers. Like this is this is this weird world that I just take completely for granted, right? Like I'm on my phone looking at Instagram or whatever, and I'm not thinking about like the extraordinary human achievement that's like sitting right there in my hand and powering so much of our civilization. So that's what got me initially excited about you know what, like, this is fascinating me so much. This is such this weird little world that actually influences all of our lives in ways we don't, we take for granted and don't understand. What a cool world to explore in a novel, right? To invite a reader into. And then of course, that whole picture, like I just described how you're making the chip, but that whole picture gets so much more complicated once you realize where chips are made. Because so much of the chip supply chain these days depends on TSMC in, in Taiwan, where most of the world's advanced chips are fabricated. And it's become a, just a magnet for geopolitical intrigue and real world espionage because China and the U.S. are just vying over it. And like what many people don't realize is this was actually intentional. Like Taiwan very intentionally created industrial policy to bring semiconductor manufacturing to the island in order to make themselves integral to the global economy so that they couldn't easily be ceded to China by the rest of the world. Um, so it's just fascinating. It was like, the more I learned about this, the more there was to explore. And when you encounter questions like that, at least for me, that's where I know there's a novel there because it's messy. And that mess is what fiction is so good for. Well, I, I think um, we, we had Chris Miller uh, on the podcast last year, who uh, Chip War has done very well on the nonfiction side. Um, and it, it's very readable. He has very bite-sized chapters that make it very readable, but it is a very complex story. Uh, and one that I think is interesting. You can obviously understand it from the nonfiction side, understand the the historical development, why this has uh, generated the industrial policy of Taiwan, et cetera. Uh, but on the other side, there's sort of this this drama effect, right? Which is actually understanding at the the human level, you know, the dynamics here. Um, the book that comes closest in my mind, and it's not a it's not a particularly popular one, but it does share a namesake, is Michael Crichton's Airframe. Uh, oh, which was yeah. a 1990s. Have you ever read <laughs> totally. Airframe? Yeah, of course. Yeah, um, I love Crichton's You work. know, I think it's a 1990s uh, uh, book, but it was focused on uh, Chinese industrial espionage against presumably Boeing or an aircraft manufacturer in which you're trying to protect the uh, mechanics and the design of the wing. Um, the idea was the fuselage was relatively simple and, and very similar to what you just described. It's really not that complicated. Uh, requires precision, but uh, you know it's kind of widely known how to do. Building the wing is the magic to an aircraft. That's what puts it into the sky. That is what the geometry and the dynamics are really hard. The ma uh, materials to make that actually perform and perform in different weather conditions is sort of the the intellectual property of these companies. And so he was able to dramatize in the same way I think you were able to of, okay, here's this really complicated industrial technology topic. And you can learn that in the papers, you can learn that in books, but to actually dramatize what's really taking place from different governments and people uh, is really what brings it to life to a much broader audience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I was just talking to a friend the other day who invests in a lot of biotech companies. And we were talking about how effectively every synthetic biologist of our generation became a synthetic biologist because they read or watched Jurassic Park. And I think that's what part of what makes fiction special 
when they read or watched, when they watched Jurassic Park as a kid or, or as an adult, right, wherever, whenever they encountered that story, I very much doubt they were necessarily the kind of person who would have read an article in The New Scientist about genetic engineering, necessarily, right? Like Jurassic Park was their way in. It was like after having read or watched Jurassic Park, then they sought out that article in The New Scientist. Then they thought about maybe getting a degree in it or, or what could be possible if, right? Um, and I think that that's something that's I love as a reader in fiction is that it's this sort of this like magic portal into these worlds that are that can be very new to you but are compelling because it's baked into the story rather than you needing to come with the enthusiasm a priori and I think that's really special so that's certainly something like I loved reading Michael Crichton's novels um, be- for that reason and it's certainly something I seek to achieve as a writer. Well, and I will say, I mean, I I, I read last year Neuromancer, uh, yeah. William Gibson, and mm-hmm. uh, very behind uh, on the reading <laughs> yeah. list. <laughs> I'm in the 80s. I'm, yeah. I'm working I mean, on it. it. We're, we're 1983. Uh, he wrote exactly. It, I yeah. I'm almost to Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah. Almost, almost to the yeah. Lost World. Uh, but Touching um, next decade. <laughs> exactly. But when you talk about synthetic biology, I think of kind of the the. Um, biological human uh, connections that that Neuromancer really, and, and, and at the beginning of cyberpunk, but really trying to uh, evoke that sort of mood, this sort of sense of scientific progress. And I feel like that's what speculative fiction does really, really well. Now, um, I feel like in your context, so, you know, to just go back a little bit in history, this one's about semiconductors and the geopolitics around chips. You had Reaper, and then uh, pre- previous to that, you had Vale focus on geoengineering. And so I wanna, I'm curious how you sort of balance this idea of evoking a mood, evoking sort of a, a change in science, something that is something that's inspirational, optimistic, with that sort of drama and thriller aspect of, well, there's danger here, right? Because when I think about a lot of, um, you know, we mentioned Michael Crichton, but I think uh, the core of his work is that tension between, look, we have the ability to re- do recombinant DNA, we can change, you know, bring the woolly mammoth back from life or, or, or dinosaurs, but at the same time, that tool can be used in a dual-use way for evil. And I think you've tried to balance that as well in a lot of your works, all the way back to Cumulus and, and Bandwidth and, and the Analog series. And so how do you how do you think about balancing that? Because I feel like you attract an optimistic reader who's also fearful uh, of some of the potential that can come out of these technologies. Yeah. So, okay. So from my perspective, this is something where fiction can really shine. Where it can shine is that it gives you room for complexity and nuance that is really hard to achieve on your internet platform of choice or even in the best long-form journalism. Because novels are effectively sprawling, because they mix interiority of like how people are experiencing the world with how the external world is changing, there's a lot of room to play with like difficult questions that don't have easy answers, right? And so I think that there is a very common thriller plot archetype. There's some new invention and it all goes to hell, right? Like it like something breaks and it causes a disaster and the story, like the meta story is about returning to the status quo. Right? It's about saying We invented this thing, it turned out to be dangerous and it broke. And like, it seems like it's gonna destroy the world or insert stakes here, but 
we assembled this team of people or, you know, the protagonist was so creative and uh, resourceful that they were able to avert disaster and bring us back to safety. Right. And I would say that, like, at a meta level, that's every Michael Crichton book. Right. Like that's it, it, not just Crichton. That's like many thrillers. Right. Many, th many technology thrillers. And I'd say that, like, my approach, if I try, I mean, it's hard as someone writing these stories to, like, gain perspective on your own work. So if Michael Crichton were alive, he should really be the one <laughs> judging me. Um, uh, but I would say that if I try to do that, if I try to take a step back myself, I would say that the way that I think about the meta plot of my novels is they play with that similar piece of we invented something new and look at these unintended consequences, right? Like these thing, these second and third order effects of how we are changing the world very quickly get beyond what we can imagine. But the arc of my story doesn't return to the status quo. My stories, you, yes, you have to resolve whatever the does, you know, whatever has gone wrong, you have to resolve it. But that the, where, where they land is in a new synthesis that in fact, you can't go back in time. You can't go back and say, we, oh, okay, we, uh, we, we, we got so good at genetic engineering that we brought back the dinosaurs and we created this park. And now uh, the, all the dinosaurs got out. So now we just shut the park down and kill them all. And like, put this on ice, right? Like that's not like my books don't end that way. My books tend to end with, we, we invented this new thing, a bunch of crazy stuff happened because of it. And the characters have to grapple with those unintended consequences. But then where they land is, and now we live in a new world where, where we need to use this thing in a way with more intention. Right or or in a or uh, where you're synthesizing the good and the bad into taking the next step. And for me, the reason I write that way is basically is that that's how it feels to me growing up. Right, like as a person, it's like you can have nostalgia for an, a time in your past that you enjoyed. Right, but you can never return to that. Right, like it can inform who you become next, who you, the person you grow into tomorrow, but like you can't actually, there is no status quo to return to. And so for me, that's a really crucial part of like how I look at telling a story that I think maybe is a little different than sometimes like some thriller archetypes would, you know, look, you know, feel like to a reader. Does that make sense? I know that's like pretty, maybe a little mystical. <laughs> well, a, a books and novels are mystical. I, sure. I, yeah, I was thinking of, you know, I'm looking at the the, the blurbs. Uh, you have Kim Stanley Robinson as an example. And I think what's interesting is, you know, you're up to a dozen, almost a dozen, 11 books, but uh, working on a dozen. Uh, I'm sure you're always cooking up another another tale. But, um, you know, when I think of the, the Elliot Pepper DNA, one of the interesting things to me is is this sort of balance in the text. Um, you know, Kim Samuel Robertson's on the back cover. Um, his books sprawl, 
right? And they get longer and longer. Uh, very similar. I, I uh, used to read Neil Stevenson back when the works were a little bit uh, more reasonable and I didn't have a job and I was in high school. Uh, it's sort of amazing to think about, like, I just don't have the ability to read in a thousand page speculative sci-fi and hundreds of pages on, on you know, whatever the last one, Terminator Shock or whatever, Termination Shock. But uh, I'm curious because uh, the, the lengths of your novels sort of stay roughly in tune with each other. They're, they're sort of medium length. Um, you d haven't gone down the route of a lot of speculative fiction where it just gets longer and longer, more detailed, more detailed, more speculative, more speculative. And I, I'm curious, is that a deliberate decision or, or how do you sort of think about um, from the reader's perspective, kind of how you've set that book up for, for, for the reader? Oh, it's very deliberate. And um, so I always try to think of myself as a reader first and a writer second. And I try to have that perspective inform every decision I make, both creatively when I'm writing a story, also how I publish, like, like that's really where I try to start from. And I love reading short novels. They're a beautiful form. Like it's a really special experience to read a story that, that is a novel. It's not a short story. Like it's, you get to go deep, you get to actually get to know the characters. You get to do the special things that a novel gets to do. But where the story is also tight, where the, the writer is doing a lot of work for you to try to, it, it's almost like, I feel like reading a novel, the experience of reading a novel is the, the author holding you by the hand and walking you through a labyrinth. It's not you exploring a labyrinth. That would be maybe if you were gaming, that would be that, you know, that that it would be you exploring the labyrinth. But with a novel, the writer is actually leading you through the labyrinth. And I try I try to play host to the reader, right? I want to be the best guide I can be. And to me, that means like being really aware of when is the right time for the next turn in the labyrinth? When is the right time for like uh, an extended passageway? When is the right time for the the oil lamps to gutter out on the wall or right or or to cue the strings? Um, uh, and so f I just feel that there is a real beauty to tight narratives. And I actually find a lot of inspiration in. Uh, from stand-up comedians and pop music. So like Taylor Swift, like if you like if you listen to her songs, like they are extremely tight stories. And and like same with a joke. If you're a stand-up comedian, you don't have the luxury of writing a thousand page doorstopper of a story, right? Like you need to figure out what are the components in the joke that make the joke work. And you figure that out through trial and error, getting up in front of an audience and trying that joke hundreds of times and having it bomb and occasionally seeing where people are laughing. And then you're like subtracting and adding things to the joke to figure out, okay, these are the components that are, the re that are required to make that joke work. And I try to think about that in literature to think, how do, what are the pieces in this story that really matter? And how can I lean everything into just those pieces so that I'm really earning the reader's attention with every sentence? 
because of, because the world is full of noise. There are so many things you could be doing that are that do not include reading a novel, right? Like 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 books, like even literature in general is niche, right? Like very niche, and like just my books are insanely niche, and so I take the attention of my readers really seriously. And I, I want to keep earning it with every sentence. And that doesn't mean that like the, I or I don't know, I could imagine a certain kind of listener assuming that that means that everything is just plot driven. Like, but that's not true, right? Like if you watch a movie that's really good, what makes it compelling is not just that there are fight scenes, Right, you like it is. I don't balanced. know what movies you're watching. <laughs> sure, well, yeah, it depends what you're into. But at least for me as a reader, I really like like bringing in that balance of like um, uh, interiority, of action, of reflection, of of ch- personal change and development, um, of thinking about the world and and how it's evolving, like. All of those mixed together in the right combination, just like when you're cooking a meal with different ingredients, that's what makes it compelling to me. One of the other things I think that is useful here is you have less cynicism than most speculative fiction writers. Uh, you know, I, 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 Kim Stanley Robinson and I have a not a not a personal dialogue, but a, an online dialogue of sorts. Of I find him very negative uh, and very cynical about humanity and the approach that you have to take, uh, particularly around Ministry of the Future. Uh, but I, I recently read, as an example, Ned Bowman's work, uh, Venomous Lump Sucker, which is a great title, uh, very yeah, bold cover. I've not read this. Uh, has won a lot of uh, attention uh, and garnered a lot of attention over the last year. And um, you know, it's it's sort of a, a near future speculative fiction. Anarcho-capitalists have taken over the world. It's centered around a, a sort of Bitcoin haven owned by a billionaire, and they can't get the doors open because you have to have a smart contract to open the door, but the smart contract is broken, so all the doors are not functional. And people are uh, stealing uh, kind of credits for killing species, uh, and that's where the title comes in of the venomous lump sucker is is um, you have to have a credit in order to kill a species. Uh, but if you don't have it, then you're you're kind of screwed. And a company sort of accidentally kills a species, and they don't have a credit. And so the whole book is a drama of like, how do they get this credit for a species they've already killed? But it, it, it's quite a cynical. It's it it, it it you could argue it's a very uh, corrosive takedown of of technology and capitalism as it exists today. But I also think it's just very cynical in the sense that so much of near future speculative fiction is dystopia, and it's negative, and it's like, well, we're clearly going to somewhere bad. And what I find interesting with a lot of your work, having read it for, I, I think, probably 10 years, is that uh, an exaggeration? I feel like Analog was probably the first, I missed your first series, the Common Share series. But uh, I think Analog yeah, and Cumulus uh, comes out back in 2014. Cumulus came out in 2016. 2016. So almost a decade. We're getting there. Mm-hmm. You, you sort of do this balance of, you know, yes, there's bad things happening. So then Cumulus, if I'm mm-hmm. recalling correctly, you're there, you know, Oakland is sort of this high inequality place and it's really exploring the challenges in the Bay Area and inequality and technology. But there's still like a hopeful, optimistic message that comes out of that. And I, I'm curious, like, is that part of the Elliot Pepper DNA? Are you an optimistic person <laughs> going into these? Do you do you go through a trough of disillusionment as part of this like mm. uh, catastrophe as you described mm. it in the plot driving driven process uh, from Ed Catmull and others? You know, where do you, do you start optimistic and go pessimistic and back or, or mm. how does that work? I think that in today's world, it is very easy to be a cynic and there are good reasons to be cynical in life, 
right? Like there are assholes, 100%, right? Like they, we've all encountered them, they suck. And especially right after you've encountered an asshole, um, <laughs> it's very easy to be cynical, right? Like it's easy to then assume that everyone's an asshole. And I think that our media environment, just like being surrounded by the news cycle all the time helps support that because you everyone's talking about everything that's going wrong, right? Uh, I mean, it's not unlike gossip on a personal level, right? Oh, who's getting a divorce? Oh, you know, it's like, what do people gossip about? Very often it's like the it's bad shown, things. It's schadenfreude, right? Yeah, like, well, yeah. that something terrible happened to them. Did right, you something terrible happened. Oh my God. And like, I feel like... W- Humans are very used to dealing with that on a personal level, that schadenfreude. But I think that if you used to read The Economist once a week or The New York Times on a daily basis, and that was your access to the schadenfreude of the larger culture of like literally the globe. And that was like a lot of filtration and like editorialization and people sort of like packaging and digesting it for you. And today it's literally on your phone. You're most people, myself included, check my phone way too much. So effectively I'm like always dipping in to an infinite supply of schadenfreude. And that like what could be a better recipe for cynicism than that, right? Like you are just always exposed to bad things that are happening right now and people having very strong opinions about them. And so it's natural to conclude that everything's going to shit. But the weird part, the thing that I try to remind myself of is that If you gave me a time machine and said, here you go, Elliot, you can go to any time in the past and live there instead, like I would hand you back the time machine. I don't like, are you serious? Like anyone who (laughs) reads history, anyone who reads history, like with any degree of depth knows that the farther back you go, the worse life gets. Right. And, and so like when you like, so yeah, we, I'm checking my phone and like seeing all these terrible things that are happening around the world, but my phone is the product of like the insane human inventions that we talked about earlier in this conversation, right? And, and so like, we don't think about that. We think about the, the thing we saw on the phone. We don't think about the phone itself. We don't think that like, we happen to be eating like an organic salad while we're reading that news item that, you know, like there, and so uh, for me, Like I look at the world and I'm always trying to remind myself of that. I'm always trying to remind myself that like things are like, of course, terrible things are happening in the world. And like that can make you feel shitty. And also like we have modern plumbing, like you like, (laughs) right. Like and and so that's how I think on sort of the world level. And and so then what I try to do is extrapolate from a personal level, which is that I have encountered assholes and they've made me feel cynical before. And also I far more regularly encounter kind people who are trying to do their best. That is thankfully, that is way more common than encountering an asshole. And like, in fact, sometimes I misread person trying to do their best who's just in a crappy situation 
Sometimes I misread them as an asshole, which is really on me. When I write a story, I try to think about that on the personal level as well as on the world, the external, the macro level that, that yes, bad things are happening. And also the only thing that can make things better is you making different decisions. No change stems from someone who just says, well, everything's broken. So I'm going to sit this one out. I, I, I love that, 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 uh, that, I'll sit it out. Now, I, I want to go back to your earlier. Um, I told you I live in a cave. Uh, every once in a while, I put up a little antenna to see what's happened. I'm like, nope, it's still bad out there. And I just walk back inside. Um, but I, I do have a Star Trek style replicator in there. So it's really great. Nice. Um, that's, that's crucial. Thing. Thanks for sci-fi um, uh, progress. But I want to go back to your comment about the time, uh, time machine, because I do think, you know, both to interconnect this with Michael Crichton's timeline, which was about a time machine that can only go back in time. It was about authenticity and uh, it was sort of this kind of capitalist drama of tourism and how do we create the next Disney world? And it was like, well, we'll go to the past. That's where Disney is uh, because people want authenticity and was turned into, I, I, if I recall, a poor movie, but a great novel. We had the comment on the podcast a couple of months ago, maybe a year ago with, with Josh Wolf here at, at Lux. Um, and he asked me, like, would you, if you had a time machine, would you go to the future or the past? And I said, well, I actually wouldn't go either direction. I think we're actually living in sort of the best possible moment. We haven't gone off the cliff uh, into all the crises that we're going to have in the future here. But the past was also pretty bad. And so, so my, my form of optimism is very um, in the present. We're living <laughs> our best possible lives right now. We should enjoy it while it lasts. Um, and I don't know if that's inspirational. It's probably not optimistic. Um, but uh, we're, we're at the, the peak of the parabola. That's how I think of life. Uh, yeah, hopefully well, the parabola expands. <laughs> yeah, well, okay, but I think there's something really profound in that perspective and something that I certainly agree with. And also that is like core to what my novels are, all my novels are about, which is that um, I think it's very clear that from our perspective right now, the farther back you go, the worse it gets in terms of the past with that time machine. And I think that the open question is what we do next. Right. That's like there is like just because I think we current that I wouldn't go anywhere in the past. That does not mean that tomorrow will be better. Right. Like there I, I don't think we are on an inevitable road to progress. I think that it feels like there should be the word evitable. Like, you know, like, <laughs> like, 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 like I think that that we there there are many ways that many paths we could choose from here, many of which lead to way worse futures, right? Like it, like even the, I'm, I can't remember the name, but like the d very dystopian future you were describing, like that is not like that, like we could, things could absolutely guess, get worse. And if you look at history, there were times when basically for large groups of people, things were pretty good and then things got worse. I think it's absolutely possible that things get worse, but I also think it's possible that things get better. And I think that the exciting part and the scary part is that like, it's up to us, <laughs> right? It's like, <laughs> like, like that is that choice that like how, what we choose to do with the gifts we've been given is what will enable either things to get worse or get better. And so it's that uncertainty, it's that decision, that, that those series of collective decisions, I, I mean, that's like 
we are living on the brink of time, right? Like, like everyone is. And so just like you're going to make decisions that will inform the path your individual life takes, we are collectively doing the same things for our species. I don't have your conviction that we are at the peak because I think it is totally possible that the peak is still far off in the future. But I also don't think that that peak is inevitable. I think that that takes a lot of hard work, a lot of kindness, a lot of wisdom and creativity and resourcefulness that like we have to show each other. Well, I'll say, uh, because we're we're ending up on on the podcast here, but I think this is a great analogy for what a novel is, right? Which is nothing's inevitable. You don't know the actions of any of the characters. You don't know which way the plot is going to go. It could be optimistic and it could be pessimistic. Um, Having read Foundry, uh, I already know the answer to that. But in order to know the answer yourself, dear listener, you need to take a read in order to figure out what's next. But Elliot Pepper, author of the latest book, uh, novel Foundry, out in stores on Amazon.com. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.